you know, it's always amazing to donate money, but black people in America are spending hundreds of millions of dollars at, you know, some of these major retailers every quarter. So a million dollars to the NAACP, you know, when everything that's going on is not really what we could consider anti-racist. Welcome to Mission Critical, a podcast about the big picture, the purpose, and the values that drive today's most game-changing companies, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm your host, Lance Chung, Editor-in-Chief of Bay Street Bull, and I'll be introducing you to a group of brilliant minds who are making an impact on the world and forging the path ahead. While they may all be very different from one another, the question remains the same. What's your mission? Aurora James is a force to be reckoned with. Those of you who are tuned into the world of fashion will likely recognize her name as the designer behind sustainable accessories brand Brother Valleys, a favorite amongst fashion heavyweights like Beyonce, Zendaya, and Solange, to name a few. You may also recognize her for gracing the cover of American Vogue's coveted September issue in 2020, and more recently, as the designer behind US Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Tax the Rich Gown, worn to the 2021 Met Gala, known as the biggest night in the fashion industry. But beyond the fold of fashion, she's also been hard at work to create real and meaningful change within the larger community. In 2020, the Toronto native and New York City transplant started her nonprofit, the 15% Pledge, in direct response to the wave of corporate statements issued during the Black Lives Matter movement. Focused on keeping these businesses accountable to racial equity, Aurora challenged the corporate community to commit at least 15% which is roughly the proportion of the black population in America, other shelf space to black owned businesses. Today, that has manifested in a movement that has seen some of the world's largest retailers like Sephora, Indigo, and Bloomingdale's sign on to help decrease the racial wealth gap. There's so much more I could say, but why don't I just let her explain things further? On today's episode, Aurora and I talk about progress, community, and what it means to take the pledge. Enjoy. Okay. Hi, Aurora. It's such a pleasure to be chatting with you today. How are you? Hi, Lance. I'm so good. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh my gosh. It's it's our honor to have you um, as a guest. I've been following your work at Brother Valley's for a while because as a Canadian, when we see one of our own on an international stage, you can't help but champion them because there aren't a ton of homegrown brands competing against the best of the best out there. And your brand has had such a distinct point of view from day one, it seems. Mm, thank you. I really appreciate that. I think with Brother Valleys, I really kind of tried to approach a fashion brand slightly differently and really focus in on artisans across the world, predominantly in Africa, and involve them in the process. I think for so long, people of color within the fashion world have kind of existed on mood boards, but not really shown up on the PL and been involved in the boardroom. And for me, it was really about making that integration happen and bringing culture to life in high fashion in a real tangible way. Yeah, I love it. So I want to talk to you about your organization, 15% Pledge, and the larger conversation around the racial wealth gap. But I think looking back a few years would be a good place to start. And you've already answered a little bit about it, but can you tell me a little bit about Brother Valley's and its core values and 
where it's at today, I guess. Yeah, of course. So I started Brother Bellies in January 2013, which was actually just a few years after I left Canada and moved to America. And for me, I had been traveling around Africa and my mom really raised me with a deep love for fashion, but really understanding it as a tool of cultural expression. And so when I was spending time in Africa, I was really surprised that everyone that I was seeing was wearing like they were wearing like true religion jeans and like, you know, (laughs) printed t-shirts. And I was like, what's happening? You know, their like style icon was like Cristiano Ronaldo. And like, they just really wanted to wear whatever Kanye was wearing. And I, I was really thrown off by that and spent some time sort of seeking out traditional workshops that were there. And when I would find these artisans, they would say like, oh yeah, it was a multi-generational thing that I learned, but we're actually like about to close this workshop down. You know, it was that story over and over again because the local demand wasn't there anymore. And I happened to be in Southern Africa and Namibia and learned about this traditional Southern African shoe shape called a felskoon or a veli for short. It's sort of the original shoe that was manifested in Africa. Like you just kind of, they were wrapping their foot in leather and then it kind of evolved to being three pieces of leather. And then they put like a rough sole on it. And um, when British people had actually come to Southern Africa, they saw that shoe and they brought it back up to uh, the UK and they renamed it a desert boot and they started a company Mm. called Clark's. But that shoe shape is actually a traditional African shoe shape. And there are a couple of those workshops that were still existing. So I took the money that I had at the time, which was $3,500 and sat down with them and made a batch of shoes and changed a bunch of things and kind of sent some updates and uh, brought it back to the Lower East Side flea market and launched my line. You know, the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> and so what would you say has, you know, what has your experience building Brother Valley's taught you about advocating for yourself as a business owner and one that is black owned and woman owned, especially in the luxury fashion space. As it pertains to history, I guess stopping the Brother Valley's origin story there kind of doesn't leave way to understand that that history and the history of a lot of black entrepreneurs in this country specifically has been quite jarring. And you know, lack of access to capital has been a huge thing for me. Like I wasn't able to get a bank loan. I was also technically an immigrant to the country because I was coming from Canada. Right. So I didn't have any established credit and it was really hard. Look, there's like pre-existing biases around people and what they look like. And when you walk into the bank and you are not a white man, especially in America. People aren't looking at you as soon as you walk in and being like, oh, I need to tend to this customer because this could be a great job opportunity for me. And ultimately that's a lot of motivation for people. And then even with entrepreneurial stuff, like there's the whole like, you know, raise money from your friends and family first, right? And if there is a lack of access to capital in your immediate community, then that isn't really an option. And it's like, how do you grow your business to the first 1 million or the first 3 million? That's the hardest time to do it. And um, for me, I really needed to figure it out myself and work what the statistics say much harder than um, a lot of other people to make it happen for myself. So now you're overseeing two very different but interconnected companies, Brother Valley's and the 15% Pledge. What is 
the 15% pledge in a nutshell? And why did you start it? What started it? What was the catalyst to starting it? So the 15% pledge is an advocacy organization speaking up on behalf of Black entrepreneurs, Black founders, and Black future founders, as well as Black people in the workforce. But our initial call to action is for major retailers to commit 15% of their shelf space to Black-owned businesses across the country. And what I mean when I say shelf space is basically their purchasing power. So however much they're purchasing, our ask is that they take 15% of that budget and put it towards Black-owned businesses with the goal of getting us closer to economic equality. The organization exists in both Canada and U.S. Do they operate in the same way in both the markets? I know that there is an emphasis also on Indigenous-owned companies as well. Is there a big difference between the two? Great question, yeah. So in Canada, we tweaked it a little bit because in America, it's 15% is roughly the correlation of how many Black people are in America. And so with Canada, the proposition is actually 25% BIPOC. So that's what we're asking our Canadian retail partners to commit to. And when you were doing your research and you know coming up with the foundation of the organization, or is there anything that surprised you about your findings, your research findings, the things that you were discovering about the business landscape and how it supports BIPOC-owned entrepreneurs or the lack of support, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I had the initial idea for the pledge, it was a few days after George Floyd was murdered and I was on the phone with a friend of mine who was talking to me about a major retailer and was like, what should they do? Like, you know, they're trying really hard and, you know, they just donated a million dollars to the NAACP. And I was like, okay, well, that's nice. You know, it's always amazing to donate money. But black people in America are spending hundreds of millions of dollars at, you know, some of these major retailers every quarter. So a million dollars to the NAACP, you know, when everything that's going on is not really what we could consider anti-racist, right? It's definitely an amazing Mm. thing to do and something that everyone should do if they can. But what we need are changing these corporations in their, you know, entire workings to become more intuitively anti-racist and more actionably anti-racist. And she was like, well, you know, if donation isn't enough, like, what would you want them to do? And I was like, well, major retailers should consider, you know, 15% of their shelf space if black people are almost 15% of the population, because ultimately, you know, small businesses across America were dying at that point, 44% of them had closed as a result of the pandemic, 70% didn't get access to the first round of PPP. So, you know, that's pretty jarring. We need to support them in a real way because racial justice can't exist without economic justice. So that was the initial call to action. I launched it on my social media an hour later and Sephora became the first major company to commit to the 15% pledge by day 10 in the United States. So it happened very quickly, but I will tell you, Lance, like the most eye-opening part of the exercise for me was after I launched it on social was then when we started digging in and doing external audits where these retailers actually were at. I knew 15% was going to be a lot of work, but never in my wildest dreams did I think that most of these retailers were at 1% or below. A lot of work cut out. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the highest one that we ever saw in doing this work was 3%. And that was Sephora. 
so going beyond shell space, I mean, it is on purchasing power, as you mentioned. Is there any language around how brands are prioritized or how consumers are encouraged to engage with these brands beyond them just being a part of the product mix that a brand offers? Um, yeah, I mean, listen, we need to create an entire ecosystem in order for this to work, right? Which is also why we had American Vogue take the pledge and InStyle Magazine take the pledge and keeping consumers engaged around this and around this idea and allowing people to really understand you know, how powerful they are. One of the biggest questions that I've gotten like over the years in general with my own activism work and having a platform is from people who are saying, I love what you're doing, but what can I do? Mm. And, you know, the world has changed so much. I think that individually now we are more empowered than we've ever been before. And every time we spend a dollar, that's a direct exchange of power. And we need to be spending on the things that we want to see succeed and the ideas that we want to see thrive and grow. I know for me, when Sephora Canada took the pledge, for example, and committed 25% of their shelf space to BIPOC-owned businesses, I was ecstatic because I was like, I cannot wait <laughs> to find out which products they're bringing on that are founded by indigenous people and be able to spend money on that and like learn about new things and, and understand each other more. And to me, that's so much more interesting than just filling my own shelves at home with another L'Oreal brand. There's such a beautiful discovery element to it, as as you're saying, in terms of being able to explore and discover this new landscape of BIPOC-owned businesses and entrepreneurs. And of course, just because you're a Black-owned brand, it doesn't mean that your only clientele is going to be the Black community. It's going to open it up to a huge consumer segment that gravitate to your brand because it's a great brand in general, too. I know. It's so funny that you'd say that because very early on, I would talk to some of the retailers and they'd be like, well, we don't know that we have enough black customers. I'm like, what? Like, it's so wild. I'm like, listen, like I'm a black owned business at Brother Valley's and I rest assured that like not all of the people that buy my shoes are black. You know, and, yeah. and listen, for some people, it's just a little bit of an aha moment. And look, like it's important to note that this is hard work for people. Like this is a new concept. And as much as we want to be like, oh man, like everyone should be doing it. It's so awful when people don't do it. Like, yes, of course, like everyone needs to take the pledge for sure. But some people like this is all a new learning curve for them. They have not considered any of this before. None of these companies had ever considered it. No one even knew what their shelf space was when this proposition was brought to the table because it was not something that we were checking for. Yeah. And yeah. now that we are, now we have an opportunity to correct it and grow from it. And ultimately, don't we just want to be grateful for solutions that are presented? So I'm just really excited to keep finding out about all of these amazing BIPOC-owned brands and seeing them on the shelf space at these retailers. Also books, right? Indigo? I mean, how amazing is that? Yeah, for sure. I heard about that, actually. And Hudson's Bay Company, I mean, I've seen some big companies in Canada sign on to the pledge as well. So it's a testament to the momentum that I'm seeing out there, which kind of brings me to my next question, because, you know, what have you found to be a successful tactic in mobilizing the corporate world into action and specifically non-performative action? Because we've seen a lot of big talk and ideas from the business community, but how can we encourage sustainable dialogue and sustainable action that goes beyond just a moment? Yeah, no, such a great um, and important question right now. 
listen, like we've announced almost 30 pledge takers and those are all companies that we really believe in wholeheartedly. And, you know, there've been companies that have wanted to take the pledge that we didn't think made sense, you know, because we didn't know that they were going to be in it for the long haul. Nordstrom, who we just announced, signed a 10-year contract with us. And that involves a quarterly audit. Everyone that takes a pledge, we sit down with every quarter and look over the data and all that. And, you know, it's a big commitment on both sides. And we are mostly excited about working with people who are excited about getting this work done. And, you know, for me, I've had a lot of one-on-one conversations with founders and CEOs, and it's critical. And I think that people are understanding that we are kind of all at fault in this, right? But ultimately it's the broader system that's to blame. So Mm -hmm. now that we're seeing what it is, how can we rebuild certain parts of our own systems to make sure that we are kind of course correcting in order to build the world that we want to live in and that we want our children to build in as well. But it's a lot of work. Some of the brands that you've signed on are huge companies, which is incredible. But there's a challenge that poses to BIPOC entrepreneurs as well. And so how does a small, independent, Black or Indigenous-owned brand meet the expectations of these large corporations in terms of a supply chain or scale that they're not even used to? Is there a way to help nurture and foster a foundation where that is something that they can scale to? Oh my gosh, such an important question because with the pledge, again, like we are here to support Black entrepreneurs and BIPOC entrepreneurs, right? So making sure that they are then able to rise to the occasion is a whole separate part of the equation, right? You know, we have partners at the pledge, which are really instrumental in this. We have a long-term partnership with McKinsey, who are obviously amazing group of management consultants that are going to be partnering with us and have partnered with us to sort of help some of the BIPOC-owned businesses that we've identified really grow and scale and, and rise to the occasion. And you know, another one of our board members, Ben Bronfman, has been working with me as well on, you know, just building this landscape and making sure that they have everything that they need and that we're kind of getting all of the different resources that we can towards this community. And we've been building a database at the Pledge now for almost a year that's got over a thousand Black-owned businesses in there that we can kind of look to every quarter when we're looking for businesses to scale into our pledge takers make recommendations to make and as well as you know figuring out what the landscape looks like in terms of what resources they really do need the most mm-hmm. yeah and it addresses a larger kind of macro issue big picture issue around financing and access to capital and resources and really the racial wealth gap what's the intended snowball effect here from signing the pledge and dedicating the shelf space to being able to foster a new generation of businesses that are able to scale up to that level where they are able to be stocked on the shelves of some of the biggest companies in the world. 
Well, we really want to create a bunch of BIPOC unicorns. One of the very first people to take the 15% pledge was Jen Hyman, who is the founder of Rent the Runway and the first woman to ever have her business be valued at a billion dollars. And she's young, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's crazy. Julia Collins, who's the first uh, black female founder to ever do that is, you know, a great ally of the 15% pledge. And for me, it's really about building black generational wealth. And, you know, in order to really build communities up, you need to make sure that there's capital in those communities. And, you know, it's kind of the same proposition with Brother Bellies as well. It's like, you can either just give people money and resources and all of that jazz as, as a donation, which, you know, also obviously government needs to support certain communities in different ways as well, but let's also give them access to entrepreneurship and the ability to, you know, build their own opportunities and their own companies, and then in turn support their own communities. And we've also seen a lot of learnings over the years about, you know, women entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs of color and how much more likely they are to keep that money in their communities. And I think that that's really powerful. And so for me, I just really want to see entrepreneurs of color be able to thrive with the 15% pledge as an organization. I want to do as much as we possibly can to make sure that happens. Now, it's been just over a year since you founded 15% Pledge. What have been some of the major milestones in just a year, I guess. And how do you see the goalposts changing as you make progress and as the organization evolves? So in the first two quarters of this year, 385 Black-owned businesses have been onboarded at our pledge takers. Wow. So that's huge. And yeah. I think for everyone listening to this, like I'm sure you know, you're reading numbers every day, right? And... I think even with this movement, there are a lot of huge numbers thrown around. And so 385, you're like, okay, what is that number, right? But when you really unpack 385, right? That's 385 entrepreneurs who did not have access before that are now gaining access for the first time. It's 385 families, it's 385 doors being opened and hearing that feedback in my inbox from 385 entrepreneurs who've been given this opportunity to follow their dreams and grow their businesses has been such a huge joy for me. And I am so excited about what the world can look like when we diversify our economic opportunities that we're giving to people. I really just feel like we are getting started and our pledge takers are starting to see a lot of success as well. I know that Macy's increased their assortment by 250%, which is also amazing. And everyone's really been growing and evolving. Sephora has been doing great too. I, I can't believe that it's only been a year and we've already accomplished so much. Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful future that we can look forward to if if this is kind of the commitment and the momentum that we can see from the community around us. Who in your community did you lean on as you were building 15% Pledge? Who have been your greatest confidants and teachers and what do they teach you or advise you on? Because I imagine 
I mean, just being in the pandemic alone and just a lot of those, the social justice movements that were happening and handling your own brand and building a new organization, it was probably a lot. So who did you lean on and what kind of advice were you given that really helped? Oh my gosh. I mean, there were a lot of people that I leaned on, to be honest with you. We became a nonprofit basically on three days after I launched the idea. And we wouldn't have been able to do that without James Higa, um, who's an amazing man and a mentor of mine who worked alongside Steve Jobs for 25 years and is really just incredible. Every time I every time I'm like, oh, I have an idea. I don't know if this is crazy. I call him and he's like, oh no, this is a totally rational idea, but everyone else is going to tell you that it's crazy. But just remember, it's a completely rational idea, you know? (laughs) And he really supported me in this before there was anyone that was willing to take the pledge, you know? So that's really incredible. I mentioned my partner earlier on, Benjamin Bronfman, who's been obviously hugely supportive in this to me and also, you know, helping me keep in mind the importance of, you know, motivating the venture capital world and the Bay Street world in this proposition, right? Because when we talk of lack of access to capital, it's largely because those groups haven't really been looking to the Black community for the most promising founders in their eyes, right? And so now that there is this very clear and obvious $10 billion that's been carved out for these Black-owned businesses, people are starting to take notice, which I think is really important. And then, you know, there was this incredible group of women who were there right out of the gate to help me push this forward. Sophia Amoruso, who, you know, created Nasty Gal and started the Girl Boss Movement, is a dear friend of mine. And she was very supportive since the beginning and still continues to be supportive. Emma Grede, who's a co-founder of Good American and Skims, is, you know, our board chair and she's really incredible. And, you know, it's it's everyone also that's agreed to take the pledge. You know, some of those people are people that people wouldn't, you know, ordinarily expect. Anna Wintour put me on the cover of September Vogue magazine, you know, obviously. Incredible. Right. Like, obviously, (laughs) things like that are helpful to push the movement forward. And, you know, when someone makes that choice and then puts hope in big words on the front next to your face, I mean, it's a pretty big deal. And, you know, again, like, this has all happened in just one year. And I'm so grateful that we have these great resources to and, and people to make this happen for the community. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's just so insane just listening to you say all those things. And 2020 has been wild and 2021 has also just been, I mean, I guess we're already halfway through it, but also been just quite a year too. So tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> Last question. What is your mission at the end of the day? What's the common thread that connects the work that you do at 15% as well as at Brother Valley's? What is the big picture for you? My mission for the 15% pledge is basically to like build myself out of relevancy. Like I hope that my daughter one day is like, mind you, I don't have a daughter. So I'm giving myself a little bit of time here. Right. (laughs) My daughter one day is like 15% pledge, 15% shelf space. What is the point of that? You know what I mean? Just because it's like such an obvious thing that 
founders look like me and look like you and the targets and the Walmarts of the world have a lot of small businesses on their shelves. You know, that's really my goal with the pledge, like just changing the American economic landscape and the Canadian economic landscape and having it be more inclusive so that all of this, you know, becomes an afterthought. You know, with Brother Veli's, I really for years sort of wanted to keep it this really niche, pure brand, which I think I've done a great job of doing, right? And I've Mm -hmm. built a really strong core audience and following and, you know, people who are very committed to sustainability, very committed to equity, very committed to getting off of this like crazy fast fashion roller coaster. And I think keeping it the way that it has been for so long has allowed me to A, retain 100% of my ownership of that company and B, grow it in a way that has also given me a platform that's allowed me to advocate for the causes that I believe in, right? Because even before the 15% pledge, I did a lot of work for, you know, the Democratic Party and Planned Parenthood and, you know, all of that. And I'm so grateful that I've been able to grow my company in a way that has given me that sort of autonomy. And now it's about growing that business as well so that, you know, we can really change the idea of what a luxury fashion brand means to people, right? Because when we associate brands with being luxury right now, like what is that association? It's like, oh, okay, because the ad campaign or because of the celebrity they hired or because we've been told that Italy has more of a value than Ethiopia or or what is that, right? So Mm. we can sort of reframe what luxury means to us individually as consumers. I think that that's really important. I know for me, especially going through the past five years of this country, (laughs) the greatest pride for me has been the businesses and people in my ecosystem who have advocated for my rights as a human. And I want to support those businesses solely because we cannot afford not to. And I think as a business owner, it is the highest form of luxury to be able to have a healthy, thriving supply chain and a healthy, thriving community base. That's really the goal. Amazing. Amazing. And what a way to end uh, our interview. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. And it's been just very inspiring and enlightening and just wonderful to speak to an entrepreneur and a, and a business person that is really just looking to make an impact and and is making an impact and just carve out a, a future that we can look forward to and is a little bit more equitable. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. And honestly, it kind of goes without saying, but I wouldn't be here where I am today if it weren't for the fact that I was born and raised in Canada, honestly. And I think that we view each other, our differences, the economics around culture a little bit differently. And everyone's asked me for years, like, what made you start Brother Valleys? And I'm like, "Mm, the way that I look at the world and that was shaped in Canada. So yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Rora. And I hope that we can chat again soon. Thank you. I'm sure we will. Aurora has always had a distinct point of view and a message to share. Since starting her first brand, Brother Valleys in 2013, The Canadian-born designer has used fashion and commerce as powerful mediums to encourage dialogue and drive meaningful change. 
She's not only mobilizing the corporate community to open their checkbooks, but also assisting them in the implementation of anti-racist policies into the very fabric of their businesses so we can all see ourselves represented on the shelf. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts so we can get the word out. To keep up to date, subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, ask yourself, what's your mission?